Thank you so much for being here today. I know we've got a lot of folks that are away on vacation, and rightly so, they should be. If you haven't had a vacation and you need one, take it. Get rested up. We're going to have a busy fall. Been a busy summer. We've got a mission team getting ready to go to Roanoke to be with the church that we planted six years ago. It doesn't seem that it's been that long, but it has been. And Brother John and Michelle are, are doing well, and we're excited about going and being with them for the week and being able to do whatever they need done. We're going to serve them. And uh, what a blessing it is to be able to do that. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We do have some first-time visitors, and we're glad that you're with us. Want you to be at home. Uh, put your seatbelt on. You never know what this guy's liable to say. <laughs> well, we we pray that it is, and if it's not, we'll go back and try to fix it. <laughs> I promise. We've all heard this phrase. I think the first time that I read this was uh, it was in a book written by John Maxwell, and. Uh, it goes like this, you just don't know what you don't know. Think about that. You don't know what you don't know. And I think the idea behind that statement is something like this, that if you don't know something, then you're not responsible for what you don't know. Well, that sounds pretty good. It may be somewhat comforting, uh, but it's just not always the case. I think if we were honest with each other, we'd have to admit that most of the time we know far more than we're willing to admit or more than we realize. Case in point, I want you to look with me at Romans chapter one. I always like to go to this passage of scripture because occasionally I am confronted by people who say, well, what about those people who've never heard about Jesus, never met Jesus? How is God going to hold them responsible when they've never heard the message that you and I hear all the time. Well, this passage of scripture covers them as well as us. And, and we, pay, we, we need to pay attention to what is written in these words. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Paul writes, but God shows his anger. Now, let me just stop there for just a minute. We preach about the love of God all the time. And, and somebody sent me an email the other day talking about the character of God. We, we like to overlook this side of God, but it's a real part of God. God not only is a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. Don't amen that. <laughs> you know, uh, so many times I feel so unworthy and and I realized that God had a right to destroy me the very first time I committed sin. He could have, and by all rights he should have, but in his grace and mercy and compassion, he chose not to do that. There is a wrathful side of God that I think the human race overlooks. And Paul brings that to the surface when he says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful Wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. Now let me define that. It says all sinful people. We're talking about everybody that's ever lived, everybody that will live, those that haven't even been born yet. We're all wicked people, sinful people. Amen? Oh me. 
But he's specific here when he says, against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. Now, that tells me that everybody has a good dose of truth. But not everybody receives it. It's like going to the pharmacy, buying your medicine, going home. Sometimes we take it, sometimes we don't. It won't do you any good if you don't take it. Truth will not do you any good unless you take it in, unless you receive it and apply it to your life. But not everybody does that. And he says that. He said in verse 19, he says, for the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. He says, from the time that the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God has made. And they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So, so what Paul stresses there is that everybody around the earth, because of what we've seen in creation, can see God. Everybody has some level of revelation about who God is, no matter where you live on this planet. Now, this next verse this next sentence is very important. Because of that, they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. You're not going to be able to stand before the Lord somewhere down the road when you stand at the great white throne judgment and say, but, 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 but God, I, I, I didn't know. He's going to say, yes, you did. And this is why you knew. So what I'm telling you is that nobody in this room nor outside on that road or in their homes today or wherever they're at, nobody has an excuse for not knowing God personally in your heart because he gives you a head knowledge, an understanding of who he is. Look at verse 21. He says, yes, they knew God, not with their heart, but with their head, head knowledge. A lot of people have head knowledge. In fact, everybody has some degree of head knowledge about God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was that their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols. Now you're probably sit, sitting there going, but I don't have any idols in my house. Oh yeah, you do. Anything that you spend more time with and spend more money on than God can become an idol. He said, and instead, they worship the, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people or birds or animals or snakes. The reality is we all know enough about God from the revelation that he's given us to know that there is a God and that we need to acknowledge and, and rightly respond to God. And if you do, if you accept the truth that God has given you about himself, and you want more, then he'll give you more. He'll give you more revelation. He'll, he'll help you to know him in greater depth. 
And in the same way, if you refuse and reject the truth of God, the truth that he's given you, then he'll help you to receive what you want that goes in the opposite direction. If you want to go away from God, he'll help you. He really will. And I know that based on scripture. Look at verse 24. It says, so God let them go ahead and do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. In other words, he gives you all the rope you need to hang yourself spiritually. Instead of believing what they knew was the truth about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. And so they worship the things that God made, but not the creator himself, who is to be praised forever. Amen. Now notice verse 26. This is where it gets really serious. Paul writes, that is why God abandoned them. That is a strong word, to be abandoned by God. We don't have any idea of the ramifications of what that means. I've never been abandoned by God. I've never been abandoned by my parents. I've never been abandoned by anybody. Well, a few. You can't be a pastor and not have that happen occasionally. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against their natural way of having relations and instead indulged in relations with each other. And the men, instead of having normal relations with women, burned with lust for each other. And men did shameful things with other men and as a result suffered within themselves the penalty for which, or the penalty they so richly deserved. When they refused to acknowledge God, it says again, he abandoned them to their evil minds and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin and greed and hate, envy and murder and fighting and deception and malicious behavior and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud and boastful. They are forever inventing new ways of sinning and are disobedient to their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises and and are heartless and unforgiving. They are fully aware of God's death penalty for those who do these things. And yet they go right ahead and they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do the same as well. What an indictment. Now I want you to go back and look with me at a, at a word that Paul uses in verse 21, verse 23, and then verse 25. It, it's the word worship. We've kind of focused on worship this morning. The most used Greek word for worship in the New Testament is the word proskuno. It means to bow down to. To bow down to. Do we see Baptists do much bowing to God? No. I'll never forget going in to a Buddhist temple in in Thailand years ago. (laughs) Had to stand in line to get in there. Wouldn't it be great if we had to stand in line to get in church? Wouldn't it be great if there was no seating available? There were no seats in that Buddhist temple. Had to take my shoes off when I walked through the door. Never had to do that in the Baptist church. Had to take my shoes off. I walked in. There's a statue of Buddha 
And as I, as I walked in, this armed security guard said, you bow. I said, no, I go. <laughs> I went and got my shoes and left. I wasn't bowing to that idol. But the building was full of people that were bowing to idols. And they were putting chickens and pineapples and oranges and apples and all kind of stuff outside with little incense. And they were burning all this stuff to this God. This word worship is used over 60 times in the New Testament. 24 of them are found in the book of Revelation. When you talk about worship, it's a matter of the heart. It is an expression of one's inner relationship with God that is directed toward God. In other words, God is to be the focal point of our worship. He is to be the object of our worship. In fact, God expects that and demands that of us. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You'll see that. It says, do not worship any other God besides me. Me is Yahweh God, Elohim. Do not make idols of any kind, whether in the shape of birds or animals or fish or any other shape. You must never worship or bow down to them, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God who will not share your affection with any other God. I, I do not leave unpunished the sins of those who hate me, but I punish the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generations. Now you gotta understand that last little statement. What, what, what he says there is, is that there's a strong chance that if you're worshiping idols, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids are going to worship idols. And I promise you, God will not let any of that go unpunished. When Satan was tempting Jesus, the early part of his ministry, Satan wanted Jesus to bow down to him. He's always wanted to be God. And Jesus said, get out of here, Satan, for the scripture says you must worship the Lord your God, serve only him. When Jesus encountered the woman at the well there in Samaria, he said to her, believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father here or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming and is already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, we're not gonna worship an idol. We're gonna worship the God who cannot be seen, the invisible God. We're gonna worship in truth the fact that he says who he is and we know him because of what he has given us in his word. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship him in that way. For, the, for God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, there are many different expressions of worship spoken about in the Bible. There's a lot of different expressions, ways to worship God. You can worship God by meditating on the person of God. By meditating on the person of God. Think about that. 
Look at what Habakkuk 2.20 says. And kind of picture this. Kind of envision yourself in the scriptures here and doing what scripture says. He writes, the Lord is in his holy temple. And all the earth should be silent in his presence. I want you to envision coming into God's worship center, this sanctuary, the house of God, coming in quietly with reverent thoughts about coming close to God. Think about that. Think about walking into the presence of Almighty God. That is exactly what Isaiah did. He came to worship God and was overwhelmed with the presence of God. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, we find that scripture says in the year that King Uzziah died. This was a very difficult time in the nation of Israel. When your king dies, your, your, your country's upside down. And it says, I saw the Lord that year. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Hovering around him were mighty seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with the remaining two, they flew. In a great chorus, they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The glory, the glorious singing shook the temple to its foundation and the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there's fire, there's God. Isaiah is seeing all this. And as he comes into the presence of God, he said, my destruction is sealed. For I am a sinful man and a, me and a member of a sinful race. And yet I've seen the king, not, not that physical king that ruled from Jerusalem, but the king of kings and Lord of lords. I've seen him, the Lord Almighty. I can envision Isaiah walking very quietly and humbly into that temple that day. He needed to see God. It's said that his king died. Well, we know a little bit more if you read scripture. That king was probably his cousin. So a family member had died. And he's grieving, he's hurting. He feels for himself, but he feels for the nation and he needs help and God met him in his need that day. Folks, it is a good thing to enter God's house in a quiet, humble spirit of adoration. I, 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 I wanna challenge you to just think back to what has transpired in the last 40 minutes, 50 minutes. How did you enter this building this morning? Harvest people are talking people. If, if we couldn't speak, we would explode. 
Because we're about relationships, right? We love to catch up on each other's life and we get to see each other once or twice a week and so we, we, we spend a lot of time talking. But how many of us entered this room today looking for God, quiet, searching for God, wanting to see God, desiring to see God, desperate to see God? Probably not very many of us. And I'm a firm believer unless you intently set out to do something, you don't do it. If we're not careful, we come in and we, we have a busy time of fellowship and we sing and we sit and we pray and we're gone and we miss God. You get my point? We need to see God. Not only can you meditate on the Lord, but you can also worship God by praying. By praying. The psalmist says, come, let us bow, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people that he watches over the sheep under his care. Oh, that you would listen to his voice today. Now, the context of this verse is that of coming before God in a meditative state, wanting to see the Lord with a with a humble heart and there's some joyful singing, but then there's that position of kneeling in prayer before God. Now, when we think of prayer, we often think about us talking to God, telling God what we need and thanking him and just speaking to God. But you know what? Prayer is more than that. Prayer is also God talking to us and us listening to God. God speaks. I've been doing this for a long time and, and, and I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've never heard the audible voice of God. And I doubt very seriously you have either. If you have, I would like to know that. I, in fact, every now and then somebody said, well, well, I talked to God the other day and God talked to me. And I go, how did he talk to you, you know? Because I've had some people tell me some things that they said they heard from God and I go, hmm. How does God speak? He speaks through his word and he speaks through that still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us, the two together speak. But how many of us are gonna come today and, and sit throughout this entire service and leave here without hearing God? If you do, you have wasted God's time you wasted your opportunity. And it's sad. Not only can you worship God through prayer and meditation, but you can and should worship God by singing to him uh, and about him. Now, some of us need to sing lower than others. <laughs> kidding. I used to play the guitar, but they never gave me a mic when I was up here. <laughs> they didn't want me singing, and rightly so. But you know what? And, and again, please let me just bear with me for a minute. We start worship at 9 o'clock. Brother Ronnie would amen that. We do. We start worship at 9 o'clock. But we have some who don't come in until the singing has stopped. And in my mind, you're missing a great opportunity to worship God. 
I don't care if you can sing or not sing. You ought to be in here singing. Hello? Amen. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine or beer or anything else. Don't be intoxicated because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Then you will be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. And you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, singing is certainly a great way to worship God. Music is a spiritual vehicle that that ushers us into the presence of God. Rick Warren says music is an integral part of our lives. Think about it. We, We eat with music. We drive with music. We shop with music. We relax with music. The great American pastime is not baseball. It's music and sharing our opinions about it. A song can touch people in a way that that a sermon can't. Music can bypass intellectual barriers and take the message straight to the heart. It is a potent tool for evangelism. The psalmist said, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. How many of you have been there? I certainly have. He goes on in verse three to say, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see what he has done. Now, how are they gonna see what he's done? Cause I should be singing about it. And when I do, they will be astounded and they will put their trust in the Lord. Friends, singing is an awesome way to worship God And you know, you you probably ought to get used to doing that here because I have a feeling we're going to be doing a whole lot of that when we get to heaven. Whether we can sing or not, we're going to be making a joyful noise to the Lord. But let me also say this, that worship does not end when the music stops. We sometimes think it does, but it doesn't. You can also worship God by listening carefully to the word of God. Listen to how Jesus prayed for us. He said, I have seen, or I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, Father, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They are not part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy by teaching them your word of truth. Folks, hearing the written word of God being spoken is a powerful way to worship God. It's a form of worship. Hearing the word of God just as it's read. But so is preaching the word of God. Paul says, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we are being saved, we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find him through human wisdom. He used our foolish preaching to save all who believed. 
There's a passage in Romans chapter 10 that we're all very familiar with. It says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We all need to be preaching more, amen? We certainly preach. I, I tell people all the time, every day you preach your funeral. Make my job easy. I'm serious. Every day the way you live, you preach your funeral. In every worship service, true worship includes meditating on the Lord. It includes praying to the Lord, singing about the Lord, uh, hearing the word of God. But worship is never complete until people have an opportunity to respond to God. Usually by the time we get to this point, people are so tuned out and ready to leave, thinking about what's for supper or what's for lunch or you know what, what are we gonna do next that they miss out on this. But folks, I want you to know that you can worship God by obediently responding with your commitment to the Lord. And what I'm talking about is responding to God during the invitation time of our services. This is typically the last thing that we do before corporate worship ends on Sunday morning. It is the time when we invite and encourage people to respond to God as God has led their heart. That's what I do as I stand down front, the very last thing in our service. I was thinking the other day in, in my 40, maybe 45 years plus of being in and around church, I, I don't remember anyone ever explaining what the invitation is for or what you do or how you do it or, or anything about the invitation. And I think sometimes we assume too much in church life. Uh, we assume that you're supposed to know everything that we're leading you to do when you don't. But not everybody's grown up in church and some people just don't understand what the invitation is all about. But let, let me just say this about the invitation. I, I think that the invitation, the last thing that we do is, is if, if not more, it, it, it's probably the most important thing that we do in the entire service. It really is. Everything that we do in our worship service leads and points to that time of invitation where you have an encounter with God and decisions are made. You know, a worship service with no invitations like having a car salesman tell you about the new car that you're looking at and he explains everything about that car. He, he answers all of your questions. He gives you all the information he, he, he sells that car to you in a sense that you know everything you need to know about that car, but then what if he just walks away and he doesn't give you an opportunity to buy it? If you don't have an opportunity to buy the car, then you've wasted a lot of time and you go home without, without what you need or without what you want. Well, think about this. What good is it to hear about Jesus if you don't have an invitation? an opportunity to respond to God. And there are a lot of churches today that just don't give an invitation. 
They'll get up and they'll tell you a bunch of stuff and they'll preach and then they'll just say, they'll, they'll, they'll pray and dismiss the service. And you never have an opportunity to respond to God. That will never happen here as long as I'm the pastor. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond to God. So what are we supposed to do at the end of the invitation? What do we do after the preaching is at, brought to a conclusion? I, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm really interested about that today. Can you tell? I want us to look at the, the, the backside. Or not, not, let me rephrase that. <laughs> I want us to look at the ending of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. I got your attention anyway. Some of you woke up. Look, look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is the sermon being drawn to a conclusion. It's the end of Peter's sermon, and he says something rather interesting to the people that were gathered there that day. He says, so let it be clearly known by everyone in Israel that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. <laughs> what a way to end the message. Talk about a spiritual slap in the face. His condemnation could not have been any clearer or to, more to the point. Now, let's look at how they responded to what he said in verse 37. They've been listening to his message. They heard this final summation. In verse 37, Luke records that Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? It's obvious that Peter's concluding remarks were absolutely devastating. They were deeply convicting. The divine goal of conviction is always repentive confession. Peter was acting very much like a prosecuting attorney and he charges his listeners with rejecting and even executing God's Messiah. They're accused of killing the one that God sent to be the Lord and Savior of the world, God's one and only Son. This Greek word for pierce, katanuso, is only used here. And it means to pierce or to stab, to convict. It also depicts something that is sudden and unexpected. You, it kind of walks up on you and catches you by surprise. Have you ever experienced gut-wrenching conviction just moments after you sinned? Has that ever happened to you? It certainly happened to me. And, and through the years that I've been with you, I've seen it happen to some of you. It certainly happened to David. And I want you to look at how he described the convicting hand of God in Psalms 38. He starts off by saying, Oh Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. That's like God saying, don't whip your children when you're mad. He goes on to say, don't discipline me in your rage. He says, your arrows have struck deep. And your blows are crushing me. Because of your anger, my whole body is sick. My health is broken because of my sin. 
My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and stink because of my foolish sins. I am bent over and racked with pain. My days are filled with grief. A raging fever burns within me and my health is broken. I am exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. Guys, that's conviction. That's God pointing out everything in his life that is wrong. That's God letting you know you messed up. John MacArthur said, stunned by their inability to evade the indictment that they were guilty of this heinous behavior before God, they were overcome with grief and with remorse. I'm about to say something I don't want you to miss. I want you to pay very close attention to this. I've tried to do some research here to find out the size of the crowd that day and it's impossible to know. There's no way of knowing how many people heard the message on the day of Pentecost. It's impossible to know. Dr. Luke gives us some hints He said there were so many people there that day that Peter had to shout to the crowd. Large crowd. He addressed the crowd as fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. So there was a gathering in Jerusalem, had a lot of people. He later referred to the crowd as the people of Israel. So that crowd was inclusive of people who had come to Jerusalem who didn't live in Jerusalem. So we're talking about a lot of people here. So what's the point? Well, on a special holiday like Pentecost, Jerusalem would have been bursting at the seams with people. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of people, maybe even approaching a million or more people. There was no doubt a great many of them that heard Peter's message. So here's, here's the point, don't miss this. There were several kinds of people in the crowd that day. There always is, just like there is today. Several different kinds of people. There were those who heard Peter's message who were not convicted at all. They were not overcome with grief or remorse. They were not convicted in their heart. They weren't even angry. They weren't moved at all. They were indifferent. They were unconcerned, maybe callous. They could care less. They came and go, and, 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 and they were not affected in any way by anything that Peter said. Now, Jesus describes them, and he says something about that in Matthew chapter 13. He said, for the heart of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. I hope you understand that that is a very dangerous place to be, but there are some of you here that are that way. Nothing that I'm going to say is going to move you in any way. People like that every time you speak. I'm sure that there were also others that heard Peter's message who were convicted, who were convicted, but they still rejected Jesus and they went home lost. Now, 
If you know anything about scripture, you'll know that that's exactly what happened to the rich young ruler. He came into the presence of Jesus. Jesus spoke to him, answered some questions, told him what he needed to do to be saved, but the guy refused and he went home sad and he went home lost. Listen, I, Ronnie mentioned us having a, a view that you don't have. I, I see this every week when I preach. I, I see people who are convicted. I see people who are weeping. I see people who are tr- troubled and struggling with life, trying to figure out what they need to do. And, and, and I, I see people who are right there but they won't step across that spiritual threshold and take a hold of Jesus and they go home convicted but lost. And that's a miserable way to live your life. Praise God, there were some others there that day that were convicted who did trust in Jesus to make things right between them and God. They were the ones who asked brothers, what should we do? Again, I believe based on the numbers, 3,000 people that day responded to the Lord. They desperately needed an answer to that one question. They needed help. They needed to be free of their guilt. They were pierced with conviction and they responded correctly. Now, several reasons why they were pierced in their hearts with guilt and remorse, think about it. Uh, there were those that just realized for the first time that they'd actually had a part in crucifying or murdering the Messiah. Some of them had been present the day that Jesus was arrested and they were a part of the crowd that was screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They said it. They also realized that they were a part of the crowd that turned Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. I think there were some that also realized that they had personal complicity in the crime. They knew that the nation of Israel was guilty. Scripture said that his own people would put him to death. But for the first time, they realized their own part. They had an individual part in crucifying the Lord. Guys, there's no greater sin than killing God's Messiah. I think there were also some that feared that the, the, the Messiah's wrath. Peter had very carefully, if you read his sermon, you'll find that in his sermon, he very carefully and specifically uh, in no uncertain terms stated that the person, Jesus, whom they crucified was not dead anymore, but he was alive. And if he's alive, you know, he can retaliate. Psalms 110 was quoted By Peter, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies and make them a footstool under your feet. Folks, what greater enemy does God have than those who would put his son on a cross? No greater enemy. Do you really know who crucified Jesus? Now, if you give me the historical answer, it would be the Romans and the Jews got together, two people that hated each other, they got together and they crucified Jesus. That's the historical answer. 
But the honest answer is, we did. We're all guilty of crucifying Jesus. He went to the cross because of our sin. It wasn't nails that held him on the cross. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. Yours and mine. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We are all guilty of crucifying Jesus. Oh, and by the way, there's one more reason why they were overwhelmed with guilt and remorse and, and that is because they realized that what they had done in killing Jesus could not be undone. You can't unmurder somebody. You pull the trigger and they die, they're dead. Dead is dead is dead. As I prepared this sermon this week, there was a lot of reflecting on my life. If I don't preach it to me, it don't preach to you. The absolute worst feeling that I think I've ever experienced was the honest conviction, the reality that I was a sinner separated from God, stained by my own sin lost and headed for hell. The most frightening experience I've ever had was when I had that moment where I realized just how lost I was. It was the loneliest I think I've ever been in my life. I don't want to go back there. Again, I want you to notice the one great concern the crowd had. It, they, they said, brothers, what, what shall we do? A legitimate question, a question that desperately needed to be answered. And there's two primary reasons why they needed an answer. They were seeking desperately to find a way to make right a terrible wrong that they had done. And they were being unsuccessful. And they were desperately trying to avoid the wrath of the Messiah. So they were trying to fix this. Folks, think about this. Nobody in their right mind should be comfortable with God being angry with you. I've been hearing some sermons lately about how everything is good and rosy and God's happy with us just the way we are. I got news for you. God hates sin. And he's going to punish our sinfulness. The crowd was at the same place that Paul was when he cried out to God on the road to Damascus. If you remember that story, he went to Damascus to incarcerate, to arrest and incarcerate Christians. And instead he became convicted by Christ of his own sinfulness before God. And he said to God, what should I do? Their words were reminiscent of, of those spoken by the Philippian jailer who 
charged in and fell before Paul and Silas somewhere after midnight. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Help me. Help me. Their state of mind illustrates perfectly what's going on in the heart of a convicted sinner. Trouble, stress, desperation, being afraid, loneliness. They were experiencing a deep sense of personal guilt. They were gripped with a panicky fear of God's wrath. They had a strong and desperate desire to be saved from the consequences of their own sin. And they came to a place where finally they were willing to give in to God's will. They were at a point that they had to have some relief. My, my first and strongest experience with godly conviction was on a Thursday night in October when I was 15 years old. I had come to a place in my life where I was up to my eyeballs in sin. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? I sat and listened to a man preach the gospel. And halfway through the sermon, conviction just hit me. You ladies have flash moments <laughs> where you're flush. That's kind of what I experienced that night. I, I was in trouble. I knew every sin that I was involved with. I knew that I'd been trying to stop some of the things that I was doing unsuccessfully. Oh, I could stop them for a week or two, but then I'd be right back to where I was doing the same things all over again. I, I, I finally at that moment that night realized that I saw myself as a sinner and I saw just how much trouble I was in with God. And it became very real to me and very personal to me. I came to the end of myself. I think you have to get there, you know. God has to feed you that rope till you get to the end of yourself and you're willing to see things the way he sees them. I, I grew tired of fighting God and, and, and fighting myself. And I remember when the invitation was given, I went forward and I took Emory Williams by the hand he had said something very specific that night. He said, if you will confess your sins to Jesus, he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I took Emory by the hand and I looked him in the eyes and I said, I need Jesus and I need forgiveness. And it was so funny <laughs> and yet so serious. Emory knew exactly where I was because as an evangelist, he, he had preached the gospel many, many times and he, he had seen people just like me. And I'm sure on the inside, it thrilled his heart that I was there and willing to surrender my life to the Lord. I'll never forget that night. Emory had preached. He had a, a Native American, a full-blooded Cherokee lead worship that night. And the man had done an awesome job leading us with songs before the Lord. 
There was also some college students there that night, dressed like clowns. They had a little Christian clown presentation. I go forth, serious as I could be, wanting Jesus in my heart, confess, ready to confess my sin. I'm telling the evangelist what I need to do, and he calls for a clown. <laughs> I kid you not. And he introduces me to a clown, and the clown takes me back in a back room, shares the gospel with me one more time very clearly, and a clown led me to Jesus. So don't, don't fear clowns. <laughs> the important thing was I surrendered. I gave up fighting God. And, and I, I took Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I, I desperately needed Jesus. I needed the forgiveness that only God could provide. I needed to be saved from myself. <laughs> Some of you need to do the same thing. I needed Jesus to be the Lord of my life. There's a verse of scripture I close with this morning. It's Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. The writer says, for the word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. This is the God to whom we must explain all that we have done. I ask people all the time, do you remember how many times you've sinned? And they can't even give me the number or tell me all the things that they've done. But you know what? God's word says there are some books that he has recorded every sin we've ever committed. The date, the sin, everything. God has perfect memory. He knows all our sinful deeds. That night... when that young college student took me in the back room. I read some scriptures that we would know as the Roman road. Romans 6, I got out of my seat and I got on my knees. I put my elbows in the chair. And I opened up my heart. And I prayed and I invited Jesus to come into my life and I asked him to forgive my sin and save my sorry soul. And I got up off my knees saved. Saved. With peace and rest and joy and all that I'd struggled with was let go of. Why? I gave it to Jesus. 
He fixed what I could not fix. That's what you do at the end of a service. We've meditated on God. We prayed to God. We sung to God. We've heard God's word. We've preached. The only thing left to do today is for you to respond to God. That's the way it works. That's what makes a service complete. That's what makes God happy. Happy, happy, happy. And, and that, that's what delivers you from what you struggle with. Instead of just talking about Jesus and having him in your head, it makes a big, big difference to have him in your heart. And so here's my invitation this morning. If you'll come, I will help you like I was helped that night to find Jesus and to get him in your heart. Let's pray. Father, I simply pray this prayer. Your word has been presented this morning as you have put it on my heart to share it. We have gathered in this place not just to talk to each other, but to talk to you and to listen to you and now to respond to you. Thank you that you give us an opportunity to know you in such a personal and intimate way. Thank you for what you can do for us that we cannot do for ourselves. My prayer is, Lord, please help us to take advantage of the opportunity we have today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's stand. If God has been stirring your heart in weeks prior to today, if you need Christ in your heart, if you're tired of struggling, if there's something that you need to do to be obedient to the Lord that maybe is outside the scope of salvation, you can do that as well. Whatever your need is, I encourage you to come and give it to the Lord. Trust him with it. You've got two options, take it home with you or give it to Jesus. I encourage you to do that. You come.